Okay, so we're going to do um, Acts 21. And uh, at first read, you know, something what, well, there's some things I understand there, but what on earth is really going on kind of thing. And it, it really is exciting to, to dig deeper. In fact, my challenge, um, which I don't want to become your challenge, is that I give so much detail because it's so exciting that you fall asleep like the previous guy in Eric's uh, talk last week in the 20th where he fell out the window because Paul was going on so long kind of thing. But um, we are continuing, Acts 21 continues the story of Paul and uh, we hear about in Acts 1 verse 8 and this scripture always stood out to me um, that when Jesus said to his disciples, what will happen? Because they were asking him, what was going to happen, you know? And I'm saying, now that you're going, Jesus. And he said, what will happen, though, is that you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And I actually remember where I was sitting in the church in South Africa at the time when we read this, and I heard it for the first time. And I got so excited when it says, uh, what will happen? You will receive power. I thought, that's fantastic. And then it went on and says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, I thought, oh no, I've got to do something. And that's the immature look at what this means, you know. Kind of thing. But tucked into the story of, uh, well not tucked into actually, the biggest story into which Paul's story and yours and my story is woven is obviously his story. And his story, Jesus' story, it started at creation, it went on to crucifixion, resurrection. Um, if the kingdom come, his will be done. And it goes, like we were hearing in the gospel and life, to the fullness of his kingdom in the world that is to come. So this is a, this is a big journey we're talking about. We're just talking literally of one section of it, which is next uh, 21. If you look at the map, and it, it was helpful for me, I, never, I really didn't enjoy geography because I didn't think I was going to travel, so I just switched off my poor geography teacher. So I had to get the maps out, and I had to, I love, uh, when Phil and I talk, I always want to say, well, what's the context, Phil? Because otherwise I don't understand things. And so the context of this message from 21 is actually in the Aegean Sea. Uh, Paul is busy traveling down. He's traveling with others. He's not alone. He's the main figure, but he's not alone. And he goes right down to, Jess is saying, what? You can't hear me? Well, come forward. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry. Sorry, my darling. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's going down to the area of the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful. I've never been there, but what I've heard and pictures I've seen... Um, he's going to, his journey is in this uh, time from Miletus to Jerusalem. Hi, Sean. I'm, I'm breaking it up into three sections just to make, thanks, to make it easier for all of us, for me too. So let's start with the first section, which is, um, we're going to start reading from verse 1. I'm reading in a different translation. It's an NET, um, I mean not the NET, it's a, N.T. Wright's translation. But why don't you follow along in your Bibles? Acts 21. You got it? 
going up to verse 16, from 1 to 16. I'm going to read it in three chunks. just makes it easier. Okay. So Paul's journey to Jerusalem. After we tore ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed a straight course. We came to Kos on the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went aboard and put out to sea. After we sighted Cyprus and left it behind on our port side, we sailed to Syria and put in a tire because the ship was to, was to unload its cargo there. After we located the disciples, we stayed there seven days. They repeatedly told Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our time was over, we left and we went on our way. All of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us outside of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and they returned to their own homes. We continued the voyage to Tyre and arrived at Ptolemus. And when we had reached the brothers, we stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we remained there for a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and I often wonder how he did that, said this, This is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will tie up the man whose belt this is and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we both and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only ready, I'm ready not only to be tied up, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Because he, could not, because he could not be persuaded, we said no more of it, except the Lord's will be done. After these days, we got ready and started up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came along with us and brought us to the house of Manasson of Cyprus, a disciple from the earliest of times with whom we were staying. Okay, we're going to stop there, verse 16. So as I said earlier, we, we notice that uh, Paul is not traveling alone. He's the main figure. He's got guys with him. And I'll just remind you later on why they were traveling together like this. And already at the start of this journey, we hear some of the disciples saying to Paul, by the Spirit, by the way, it actually says by the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. So we hear, we hear that. And... Um, then we get to, I'm, I'm just going to jump because there's some things I want to pull up. I, um, I do believe that God wants to highlight something about prophecy today. I do believe he wants to encourage us on our personal journeys on this earth. And I also do believe he's going to teach us some things or just show some different new things on what he's doing in terms of internal church relationships and relationships with other churches. So that's going to be, in a sense, more application. Um, but I just want to stop at um, verse 8 
onto Caesarea where he comes to the house of a man called Philip, the evangelist. So if you remember from Acts 6, this is actually the same Philip, if, if, in case you're wondering. He was one of the, the deacons that were chosen in the early church. And uh, after that period, we, we, and you can look it up yourselves in like um, Acts 8 verse 40, he actually journeyed on and settled in Caesarea where I did read somewhere that actually he had um, was like the pastor, had become the pastor of that church. Through evangelizing the area, a church was started, and this is the, main, the man, Philip. Um, we also hear, and I don't know if when you're reading the word, if you do this, you sort of, you read and you think, well, well what's the point of that point, you know, kind of thing. But um, there's always a point. And um, 21 verse 9, it says that Philip actually had four unmarried daughters, who prophesied. And uh, I find this encouraging because right there in the beginning of the early church, we see by the Spirit, a gift given by the Spirit, which is prophecy, um, given to women. It's a speaking voice, right, that's given. And that just encourages me, and I hope it does you too. Um, But in this instance, funny enough, these four ladies said nothing. So on the scene comes someone who commentaries says is called like the wandering prophet, which is this Agabus. But Agabus comes, he's been heard of before actually um, in Acts 11.28. You can see a little bit of his background. He once gave a prophecy to the church that was going to be a huge famine across the land. And this in fact did happen. So he comes with a bit of prophetic resume. Um, let's read what he said actually I'm going to just read it in verse 11 you could probably just encourage me I've got such a dry mouth is this making sense? okay Okay, so this is the, the prophecy that Agabus gave to Paul he came to us took Paul's belt here at his girdle and tied himself up with it hand and foot This is what the Holy Spirit says, he declared. So now he's showing something and he's saying something. The Judeans in Jerusalem will tie up the man to whom this belt belongs, just like this, and obviously he demonstrates it, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. When they heard this, the people in the place and us begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So this is now the second time that Paul has been told listen, trouble and things await you in Jerusalem. And this man actually did what we call it's a symbolic uh, prophetic action. And I don't know if you've actually seen that sometimes when somebody not only um, speaks a prophetic word, but they actually act it out. Actually, we had a little demonstration of that on, tu- on Tuesday in the ladies' prayer. Um, somebody was prophesying over Grandma Mary and they said that they, they felt like a train was re- relevant in her life and actually she was no longer an old-style train. She was a new modern one, and it went on about that. Anyway, we landed up, and don't think we're crazy downstairs. We have a lot of fun with our prayer time. I don't know about you guys, but we actually, we, we, put, we asked Mary if she would be at the front of the train, and, and, and we were the coaches, and we actually, oops, we actually like, did this training thing downstairs. It was such fun. It was such fun. That, that is the symbolic prophetic action. Church can be extremely fun. <laughs> but when something like this, when a prophecy is given, 
Uh, when this happens, it's actually under the inspiration of um, the Spirit of God, right? And what, what actually is happening is like God actually uses this, this demonstration, these words, to bring his, I'm just going to do this, is just bring his future into the present and actually show what's going to happen in the future. And he actually makes it like a visible, physical, symbolic reality. Have you ever had prophecy? Like where that does, it's actually telling you something. Someone is presenting something that's in the future. I remember the first time Phil and I heard about coming to South Africa. Um, I mean, sorry, to Canada. Actually, I'd been just reading the Bible, and I've, I've clearly felt God say something to me. But then Phil went to the, the nursery school where we had our kids, and, uh, and it was actually started by our church. So one of the ladies there was from our church, and Phil was just going to go and fetch Jess, I think, from the play school. And this lady stopped and said to Phil, Phil, I don't know, but I just sense that you and your family are going to be moving to Canada. Philip came home. He said, I really don't like this. He says, people are messing with my future. <laughs> that was his response at that point. It certainly wasn't that in the end, right? Is that okay, Phil? <laughs> yeah. But that's this prophetic action coming into, into the present. So what does Paul do about this, this confusion? And, and it is. It's, um, I'm, jo- I'm joking in a joking manner saying, and we did, we really have to work through some prophecies that we feel God is saying to us personally in our reading and just how we're understanding where we're at in our journey. Um, it's not an easy, straightforward thing. And and one thing I read about when you're reading the Bible, if you come across a verse that doesn't really make sense, you know, um, you think, well, what, what does that mean? One of the ways to fully understand that word is we can't make a doctrine out of one or two words, right? We, can, we have to be careful. We have to read that word in the light of what is around it and, in fact, what is like the character of God. And so prophecy is the same, you know. Sometimes if someone comes to you and says, John, you're going to Japan. You, you have, John needs to. We all need to. We all have a responsibility. The hearer of a prophecy has a responsibility to weigh it up in, in what does this really mean, Lord? What, what is this, like, what else are you saying? Is there, is there more to this? Because I don't actually understand that. Um, so with prophecy, although it was, it could have been confusing for um, Paul, to understand this, in fact, he wasn't confused at all because God had, if you look way back in Acts, had actually been speaking about going and uh, being a witness for him to the people across the earth. But the people around him, even his brothers and sisters at this time, even the people in this place of uh, Caesarea and things like that, they actually they were concerned for their friend. And, um, and he actually said, you know, like he said in Corinthians 14, he said that actually prophecy doesn't actually scare him. 
sort of thing. He, re- he realizes it's from the, the um, Spirit of God, and so he weighs it up. And his response to their begging to not go is he said, I am ready not only to be tied up, he said, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read that prophecy again, Agabus wasn't talking about dying, but such was the passion. He was just saying, listen, you're going to be tied up. And this wasn't the first time he heard he was going to be tied up. But Paul's passion and devotion to Christ was such that he'd actually settled in his heart that the worth of his life was far less than the worth of getting this message out. And God, I hope you would do that to us where we come to this place where we prepare to go so much more into what you have for us than than our lives. So we can say of Paul that he actually made it a conscious commitment. He wasn't being foolhardy. He weighed it up. And this is how we should be. He faced the facts. And he still wanted to do what God had said. So it's not a blind, it's not a blind. We sort of say, we, there was a saying used to go around when I was young, love is blind. Love is, this is not this blind love. This is actually wide open eyes, love for the Lord. So everybody settles down and um, they say, okay, we're not going to pers- persuade Paul not to do this thing. And I think that's a good thing for us too. Sometimes we've got to learn when we've got to back off when someone is, is, is really sure this is what God wants for them, even though we might be really nervous about it. And may the Lord's will be done and the journey continues. Okay, that's the first part. So let's read from 17 to 26. So this section 17 to 26 is actually helpful for us in understanding internal church relationships and external church relationships. What I'm meaning by that is church-to-church relationships. And God has actually been doing... this This is a relevant point to us at Red Hill. It always has been, but it's more relevant now um, as you see what God is doing with us with other churches. Have you started to see that happening? Yeah, so apparently there's a lot you can learn in this section of Scripture, 17 to 26. And it sounds very jumbled up when you first read it, but if you break it down, it's clear. So when we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers gladly, they welcomed us gladly. So his beginning in Jerusalem was, was good. Okay. The next day, Paul went in with us to see James and all the elders uh, were there. When Paul had greeted them, he began to explain in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. So he starts to give a bit of a report back of all the missions that him and the guys that went with him, he gave a report back to them, and that went well, right? Um, It it says in verse 20, it says, When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to him, So they praised God for the message, but then they expressed, what they wanted to express, their their concerns, it says the Bible. It said they said to him, You see, brother, so it's kinda like 
when someone's talking to me and they, or I'm talking to them and they're there, they're there, and then they actually say, well, now, Linda, I just want to talk to you about something that's really concerning me about what you're doing. That's kind of what I'm picking up that's happening in this scripture here. We're just getting graded outside of cloud. Then they said to him, You see, brothers, you see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all ardent observers on the law of the law. So basically, he's just saying that um, Paul, can you can you notice that here in Jerusalem, there's a lot of there's a lot of people, Jewish people, who've given their hearts and lives to the Lord, but these these people are actually these believers are actually as passionate about following Jesus as they are about the law, the law of Moses, right? Okay, so they're ardent observers of the law. They've been informed about you. In other words, they know about you, that you teach all the Jews now living amongst the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise his children or live according to our customs. So that was what was really worrying them, was they, as the... They were nervous about losing their special identity. Now, when you think of that, think of like, I'm a South African coming to Canada. Some of you from other countries coming to Canada. You are Canadian here in Canada. We all, from our backgrounds, have different traditions and ways. These Jewish believers were really nervous. In fact, it said that they were not only zealous, like they had zeal kind of thing, and zeal is not a bad thing, because David said, the zeal of your house consumes me kind of thing, for your house consumes me. And they were jealous, and jealousy is not a bad thing, because jealousy, if you put zealous and jealous together, if you put zeal and and jealous together, it's zealousness. In the way that the Father, he's like that over us. It's, it's a desire to protect and defend. That is our Father. So the word itself is not a bad thing. What was happening with the, the church here in Jerusalem, it was extreme. It had kind of crossed over to what is acceptable and a good thing to an extreme thing, and they started to get riled up. And that's why, like, in my phone, I just put the color of the that the text at that point was sort of like cutting up a little bit, you know? <laughs> they didn't want the Jewish believers to lose their set-apartness to the Father, to God. So then these elders asked the question, so what should we do? It's verse 22. They will no doubt hear that you've come so they were worried that Paul was there, and this is the man who's now was Jewish like them, who's now talking about the Messiah coming. So then as they asked the question, then they answered their own question. They said, so do what we tell you. So they weren't really asking Paul the question. They were actually going to give him the answer as well. Haven't you had people who've done that to you? What do you think? Actually, let me just tell you, Kayla. You know, <laughs> they did that. So do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and purify yourself, yourself, Paul, 
with them and pay their expenses. So there's some cost in this thing here. So that they may have their head shaved. Then everybody will know there's nothing in what you have been, we have, they've been told about you that you yourselves live in conformity with the law. There's the cracker. That's what they wanted Paul to, they wanted to know that Paul was still following this uh, observance, this strict observance of the law, observance of the law. And then verse 25, I won't read that, we don't, because that actually came up in Acts before. Uh, and we see in verse 26 that then Paul took, took the men the next day after they had purified himself, after he had purified himself along with them, he went to the temple and gave notice of the completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice would be offered for each of them. We do hear about in this section, well, we'd heard about it before, that Paul was anxious to get to Jerusalem to be then time for Pentecost. And Pentecost for the Jews was a time, it had started off at, as um, remembering the law of Moses, or of giving thanks actually for the crops and the first fruits and things like that. And then it had moved on to actually remembering and being thankful that God had given the Israelites the, the law. So that was why Pentecost was happening. And I'm saying that because we can see from the crowds and the people involved in this picture that there were more than just lo the locals in Jerusalem. It said there were some guys from Judea. There were different, belie different believers that had come down. And um, in terms of when I talk about, well, how does this help us with uh, understanding our relationships here? Um, how does it help us understanding our bigger thing of relationships from church to church. So in terms of what was happening in this church was it was a Jewish, Christian, Gentile believers. It was a mixture of people going on there. And if you look at the Thanksgiving here, if I come in here as an ex-South African, because I'm Canadian now, I have a Canadian, I'm a Canadian citizen, and I said, you know what, Eros, I just want to say, we're going to come, Phil and I are coming to you and Jill for a meal for Thanksgiving. And I know you normally do turkey as a Canadian, but actually, can we have borovos? <laughs> That's our sausage in South Africa, yeah. You know, it, it's that kind of thing where I'm bringing my traditions. Those are good things, and so I made a little joke that didn't really go very far about that. But it's actually... That's, that's a good thing when I share our traditions and that, but if, that's, if that prevents me from embracing what's going on around here, it gets difficult. Let's, let's make it more personal. With us um, meeting other churches and praying with other churches, we're going to come across different styles and different ways of doing things. How do we cope with that? Uh, we did have a prayer meeting one Sunday night at the Teatro Theatre in Milton where we joined with fellow church, churches from the Milton area. And it was different, but it was so good. It was different, but it was so good. We had, we're joining other churches in worship, which is a fantastic thing. We look at the one worship. So um, I remember the one night, the one worship, Phil and I were actually at the back there, and they started to be 
come like a lot of noise down where the kids were. And I tried to sort of ignore it, you know, thinking, oh, it's not really my problem. I don't really want it to be my problem. It's other people's, I don't have any little kids. But it carried on, so I actually went down there, and these kids, they were doing, and the kids were from different churches and things. They were doing somersaults on our couches and like serious backflips and serious stuff going on there to the point that I thought, you know, I wouldn't like it in my lounge. I wouldn't like that going on in my lounge at home. So I said, uh, listen, guys, um, you, you, can't, you can't really do that. You know, like you shouldn't be doing that because these are couches. And I started to explain to them what was wrong with this picture kind of thing. And they didn't look too impressed. And honestly, the oldest age was probably about 10 years old. And uh, so eventually, you know what sometimes happens in, in a conversation like that? The adult becomes like a child, whereas the, the adult should remain the adult and the child needs to sort of pick up a little bit there. And this one little person, I won't say male or female, went back in the chair like this and she sort of went on the couch and lay in a funny position and said to me, well, whose house is this anyway, kind of thing? Or whose, whose church is this anyway, kind of thing? So I said, and then I became like a child. And I looked at her and I said, actually, this is actually God. This, this, this couch belongs to God. And this is actually God's house. And I said, like, and I just said, I just said, and this is God's house. And I live here. I added that. And, and I came upstairs and tried to find some parents. Like, yeah. that, that's kind of like internal relationships and that's in a fun way but honestly if, like, if you're messing with my kids then I might need to mess with your kids you know, that's where this can get out of hand and we did have that in South Africa where Jess was in the, in the kids ministry and can I share this Jess? and she was a bit of a biter and so <laughs> And so, um, one of my friends, and to the day she's still my friend, uh, it currently had happened a few times, so this lady took it on herself to nibble Jess back. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. It was a grown woman, you know. So I found out after the kids' ministry that my kid had been bitten by the leader. <laughs> it's funny, but these things, I had to purposefully unconditionally love this friend and forgive her and not go and find her kid in boxing. <laughs> I don't know if we should really recall all this. But, but the, the, what we learn at other to do here as a family and what we learn out there with other families of God we learn in our own families too. And uh, who takes up the trash? Who helps with this? Who does that? That's where we really box and, and work these things out. And then here, and then forgive each other. And here we need to do the same, and we need to do the same out there. That's all I'm trying to get at, really, with all of that. The reason, getting back to Acts 21, verse 17, the reason that... Um, that Paul and uh, some of his brothers had made this journey to Jerusalem was actually, if you remember, it was they were bringing a contribution. 
And the beautiful thing about this story, right back there in the beginning of the church, was other churches, in fact, it was the Gentile churches, had led the way and showed us the way. They'd put their money together in this contribution to give the poor in Jerusalem a gift. So right there, there's a demonstration for us. I want to get back to um, that section that speaks about where his, Paul's report was given and uh, it was received well, but then what was really concerning the leaders in that era of Jerusalem was the fact that they, they was, and some of it was stories, it wasn't even a true accusation against Paul, that um, he was actually teaching others to not observe um, the Jewish laws and uh, do what was required. And so they actually embellished on the story, which became false. And, um, but the elders here, it said they, they try to patch things up and they try to sort things out. And so they asked Paul to do something. And the funny thing is, they asked Paul to um, join these men that were giving a vow, these Jewish men that were giving a vow, one of the ways it was a vow of purification, they, they shaved their hair, and then at the end of the seven days, they were to give an offering. That's where the money came into it. So the leaders actually asked Paul, would he go along with these four men and do the same thing? In fact, they asked him to go even further than these four men. He asked Paul, out of his own funds, to pay for these guys to have, have their heads shaved. Okay. So that was more like a, a that was a strong tradition. Uh, and actually, what I want you to pick up from this part of the scripture is it's not so much about the action that was that 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 we sometimes think it's the action that was wrong. It was the attitude that was wrong, because Paul. It wasn't that he didn't want to have his hair shaved to align himself with these people to show himself to the rest of the people around that actually he wasn't dishonoring the Jewish traditions and things like that. So he was prepared to shave his head. He was prepared to pay the the fee. In fact, you read on and he did it. But Paul himself had actually still, even though he was a believer, had still sometimes, and you read... Uh, I've got the scripture if you need it, Um, that he sometimes did that. We read in the scriptures that he actually, as a believer, sometimes would shave his head and would come to God in this manner. But his attitude was not an attitude of, okay, God, if I do this thing, will you just bless me? In other words, not that we can twist God's arm, but will you just see what I'm doing? I've just shaved all my hair, and so you should bless me and um, because this pleases you, and this thing has nothing to do with devotion kind of thing. So Paul still, from time to time, actually did shave his hair of his own choice, but this time, because he knew the Messiah, he came in absolute devotion and adoration. It was done in that way. Do you you get that? Do you understand that? His attitude to doing this act was different. For me, it's the same with like, 
tithing, offering, with all those things in terms of prayer and fasting. In Isaiah, it speaks about where the people presented an unacceptable fast to God because they just chose for a day to say, okay, I'm just going to sort myself out for a day. I'm not going to eat or drink. I'm going to just sort myself out. But actually, I'm not actually, sorry, going to really change. That does nothing really. And God actually spoke to them in Isaiah about that. He said, listen, that's not the kind of fast I asked you to do where you just for a day humble yourselves, but you still have hatred, you still have chains, you're still accusing others. I mean, I'm misquoting the Isaiah passage, you can read it, but you haven't changed. And so here's Paul doing the same old action of shaving his head, but the whole way he now did it was out of absolute devotion to the one he served. The same with our contributions, our giving, our prayers. is not that you should see me praying, kind of thing, but rather that, I don't know, it's just because I so love to connect with, with the Lord, with his people. With giving, with fasting, it says, like, don't do it that everyone can kind of notice you. So it's the attitude that really counts it, yeah. So Paul carries out their request and it didn't, it didn't, it didn't really help. In fact, it actually riled the crowd up more. Uh, are we okay for time? Should, should I go follow on it? You sure? No, no. <laughs> okay, last section. Um, 27 to 37. Okay. So here at verse 27, we're getting to the end of the seven days, which is, was the number of days that uh, the Jewish men would give their vow for, for and would end with giving the offering. Okay? When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from the province of Asia, so there you see, they're coming, this was Asia Minor, so they're coming from another area into the city. Okay? Who had seen him in the temple area, so they'd seen Paul in the temple area, stirred up the whole crowd. So these guys came in and they just actually stirred up the stuff. They stirred up the stuff. These are not the crowds you want to join yourselves to. Um, they stood up the whole crowd and seized him. They seized Paul, shouting. So they're shouting now to men of Israel, because this is where their concern is, right, about the Israel identity. Men of Israel, help. In other words, they didn't want this battle. They weren't just making this battle their own. They now wanted everybody, you know, come and take my side. Come, like, we've got to be careful we don't do that with people. Like we say you know what, I'm really irritated about this area in the church. Can you just come and join me here and let's just, just get this thing sorted out, you know? Like the coffee's not made. Like I come here early and it's not even ready. Should we talk about the coffee? <laughs> I like after the meeting, there's like people just leave the coffee cups. In fact, sometimes they even spill the coffee. I'm just going to get a crowd and stir it up. I'm being funny, but I'm trying to tell you how these things, and then we start to stir up more people, till eventually we're falsely accusing someone, and it's not good. Men of Israel, help. This man, this one, who teaches everyone, everywhere, such an exaggeration now, against our people and the law, and the sanctuary, 
Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the inner courts of the temple. So you think, well, what's the problem with that? So there was a, the inner courts in this temple, it was said it was like for the sons of Israel. So when you talk about a Greek coming into the inner courts, that's a serious accusation, right? So they said this is what Paul did. He had brought Greeks into the inner circle courts of the temple and made this holy place ritually unclean because they weren't Jewish, so therefore they made it unclean. And then he names a whole lot of things, going down to verse 30. The whole city was stirred up. I mean, this was some major stirring going on here. The whole city was stirred up and the people rushed together. So they weren't even thinking now for themselves. Weigh up for yourselves what's going on. Don't just make decisions based on a crowd. Um, they seized Paul and dragged him out the temple courts and immediately the doors were shut. In fact, I read that um, this was the last time that Paul was actually in the temple because about 15 years later in history, that temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. So that's quite a thing that happened to Paul here. Uh, while they were trying to kill him, a report was sent up to the commanding officer of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So this, this court, so right next to the temple, there was a Roman um, fort. It was actually Fort Antonio, right? Sean, you're shaking your head, right? History is fantastic. Thank God for Sean. Um, this fort was built looking, overlooking the courts of the temple. And one of the things I read, it said that they actually just kept an eye what was going on in there, to see if there was any trouble there. And the person put in charge of this, this officer that they're talk, uh, talking about, he was like a champion for the people, to see that the people were kept happy. So they just wanted to see, well, what's going on down in the temple over there? That's what's going on here. Does that make it clear? <laughs> it's clear to me. He immediately took uh, soldiers and centurions and ran down into the crowd. When, he saw the command, when they saw the commanding officer and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So this man carried authority, right? And the soldiers obviously carried physical authority. Then the commanding officer came up and arrested him and ordered him to be chained up with two chains. He then was asked who he was and what had he done. But some of the crowd shouted one thing and some of the others shouted another thing and when the commanding officer was unable to find the truth, because actually the truth was not happening in this crowd, right? Um, because of the disturbance, he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, so to be taken into the fort. But before... Well, okay, well, let me read it. When he came to the steps, Paul had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. That's how bad this mob had got. It was violent, all right? And... For a crowd of people followed him screaming, away with him, away with him, away with him. Kill him, kill him, kill him. Echoing what was happening to Jesus. False charges, the crowd just wanting to kill him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commanding officer, may I say something? Wow, he's, he's bold there, eh, this man. Um, the officer replied, do you know Greek? And he carries on speaking there. But then what I want to end with is Paul's, just something Paul said. 
He gives his background. He gives where he comes from. Um, he's using that to be able to speak, and he's allowed to speak. He speaks in Arabic, his home tongue. And he gives an answer It's such a beautiful thing when God gives us an opportunity to speak. And what I find so moving in this is that the people he was talking to were was like his own family. It was his countrymen, um, his fellow Jews. And I don't know, I just can see the absolute heart in Paul, his love for these people that are so misguided. And I just want to read you to end with Romans 9, 2 to 5, a passage of what, why to understand this love that Paul had for these people that wanted to kill him. So 9, Romans 9, 2 to 5, says, I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart. So what about them? It's like doing about family. Left to my own self, I'm half inclined to pray that I would be accused, cut off from the Messiah on your behalf, on behalf of my own family, my own flesh, and blood relatives. <sighs> Some of you know, like, I was a nurse, and one of the things I witnessed at work, work one day was a father whose kid was dying and needed a particular organ. And this father screamed outside the door. We could hear him from to say to the staff, take mine, take mine, just take it, give it to my daughter. This is the passion. I know that's a very dramatic story. But this was the passion of that father, and I didn't just see that kind of thing once. I saw it many times where parents said, literally take me, take my kid. This is the heart, when I read this, that Paul has for these people, and may God put even a drop of that kind of heart in us for other people, for our families, for those around us. He goes on and he says, um, you know, this is my family, this is my own flesh and blood, my relatives. They are Israelites. And then he says, what he says about Israelites, he says, the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise, they all belong to them. (laughs) The patriarchs are their ancestors, ancestors, and it is from them according to the flesh that the Messiah has come. And he sees, he just is so aware of this incredible gratefulness for this group of people. And, excuse me. And then he speaks to them. And God give us the heart when we speak to people and we, to be your witnesses. Sorry. Father, just, may your word so stir us, Lord. I bought tissues because I knew I was going to need them. Just have to be practical with tears. Excuse me. 
thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Amen.